0: I never thought about Hull until I was here. Having got here, it suits me in in many ways. It is a little on the the edge of things. I think even its natives would say that. A cut-price crowd, urban yet simple, dwelling where only salesmen and relations come. And across there, over the estuary of the Humber, is Yorkshire, and you can just see Hull where Philip Larkin lives. It's a place of thunder, clouds, dark red brick Georgian streets where they survive, and steeples and domes. And beyond Hull, was the North Sea. If anywhere's the end of England and the end of land, it's Hull and beyond Hull.
1: Welcome to the podcast. It's a podcast about the culture of hope, what we do and who we are. you might be thinking that this edition of the podcast is going to be about science fiction or a burgeoning cosmology scene in the city or maybe a sentimental journey back to the early 90s dance music scene those throbbing, arrhythmiatic nights in Room or KU2 Well, I'm sorry, but it isn't I've just been messing around with GarageBand so I could have some non-copyrighted music beds and this is the best I've come up with so far. Uh, And there's some more of it at the end, so that's something to look forward to, isn't it? What it is, though, is the first of a series of conversations that I'm going to do with writers who have put Hull on stage, screen and radio. I've been trying to remember the first time I saw a play or a programme about Hull, something set here or nearby, with characters that I recognised. It was probably a whole Truck, something by John Godber maybe or Jill Adams. Or perhaps it was the famous Christmas Day episode of Only Fools and Horses from 1985, when the Trotters got involved in a Dutch diamond heist, and the streets around Kingston Square doubled for Peckham Market. A couple of years after that, Mark Herman set a comedy here called See What Wembley Frankie Walsh about a Hull City fan whose wedding day clashed with the Tigers getting to the FA Cup final. This was inconceivable at the time. The film won a student Oscar and I remember them filming bits of it one match day at Booth Free Park. As far as I know, the very first time a whole story was seen on telly was 1973 when The Land of Green Ginger was broadcast as a play for today. It was written by Alan Plater. And if there's one person who I would have loved to have spoken to for this series, it is Alan. He died in 2010, but he was possibly the original Hull writer, the first to harness our voice, our humour and our surroundings and tell stories with them. The first tenants of the Spring Street venue that would later famously become the home of Hull Truck was the Hull Arts Centre, and their first production was a musical comedy about the city's history, written by Alan himself, called Don't Build a Bridge... Drain the River Was that the first time that Hull was put on stage? Probably not But it marked the start of the dramatising of lives and events of a city by a succession of fine writers Some native, some not But all of whom found this place had got under their skin Our first writer is Tom Wells After graduating from university, he found himself back home in Kilnsea Wondering which path to take he eventually took the train to Leeds, did a writer's course and a few years later has become an acclaimed, award-winning playwright. Here he is. Just that That's not a bad thing to do at the beginning. Um, I wrote down some questions. Yeah, that's better. Um, okay. When was the first time that you saw Hull on the stage? I saw stuff at Truck. Mm -hmm. so I saw teachers
0: at Truck, Mm -hmm. which I I guess is as near to that as possible, but it wasn't specifically Hull, I don't think it was just a a sort of generic north, and it was in Hull, Mm -hmm. so, and then after that, probably, I did a play called Me as a Penguin that was in a double bill with an, another play called It's a Lovely Day Tomorrow. And what they shared was that they were both about going to Hull, right. sort of randomly. Mm-hmm. So It's a Lovely Day Tomorrow was about... Um, it, it was set during World War II, mm-hmm. and it was about two lads who wanted to get their mum an orange. Um, cause she was really ill, and it was like her dream to get an orange. And, and so they set off to travel to Hull from Leeds, to get an orange from the docks Wow. Um, and, and so that and then in me as a penguin a lad, I mean it was pretty different, <laughs> a lad comes to Hull from within sea to sample it, the delights of Hull's gay scene. Right. Um, so in those two, two things Hull was on stage but I didn't really go to the theatre that much mm. so I didn't, I don't think I'd ever seen something that was, like I hadn't seen a Richard Bean play that was definitely set in Hull. Mm. And I hadn't, and the Godpa place that I'd seen where happened to be in Hull. Yeah. But not specifically, mm. I guess. And I don't think I'd seen it on telly particularly. Like, when I was growing up here, I didn't think of myself as being from here. It was only when you go away mm. that you start to So it was when I went to uni. Mm. And then I would have noticed it, I guess, well, it was on the news quite a lot, because yeah. that me going to uni coincided with Hull winning crap towns. Right. Um, the, probably the first time I saw it on telly, properly on telly, it was when um, Kirsty and, you know and Phil, the yeah. property people, oh God, they yeah. did um, this programme that was like... Uh, location, location, location. Yeah, yeah. but I don't know if it was that or like a special version of that where they were like the worst places to live in right. Britain mm. and Hull one And at the end of it was them walking around um, sort of Humber Street in the marina which is just absolutely my favourite place in Huln. Um but they were like wandering around by the tidal barrier talking about how like the efforts that it took to keep it above water and then Phil was just like and I say don't bother and it was just really painful yeah. and, um, uh, and I, I don't think they do that now hmm. Um that, so that was the first time I'd seen it on telly as Hull I guess mm. like, I
1: mean, maybe you've accidentally seen it without yeah. realising it but. oh yeah with the advent of YouTube somebody put Alan Plater's Land of Green Ginger or some clips from it have I yeah. ever seen that and that was I think in the early 70s and that was about a woman who'd moved away coming back to Hull she was seeing a trawler or something or she kind of reunited with somebody she used to go out with who'd swoon yeah <laughs> And that was amazing because it was like old Hull, but just before I was born, you know, that was amazing to see. Um, So I was aware that Alan Plater had written um, about Hull, but I'd never seen any of this stuff on stage. Let's just go back to your start as a writer and what you wanted to write about, whether it was Hull or not. Okay. Um, I I just wanted to write about stuff that I know
0: Mm. um, because it feels really important to me Mm. that you make things... Authentic, And at the time I just um, moved, I started to write just after I finished uni and everyone else from uni had got quite spectacular jobs and was doing big moves to to London to do like graduate schemes or PhDs or, and I'd moved back into my mum and dad's house and I was working in a cafe washing up. My mum ran a cafe in Kansas, and, and um, like I really love—is it called Bathos? Like yeah. um, anticlimax, and it just felt like that's what I was living. And then you're just supposed to write about what you know.
1: Hmm. And so, what were you writing? Were you were you writing scenes and plays, or was it? Um, well, the reason I started writing plays was was that theatres would
0: teach you how to write them for free. Mm-hmm. Um, so the West Playhouse ran this free writer scheme called So You Want to Be a Writer and everywhere else was like you had to pay to mm. learn how to be to do like a master's or in like right. writing novels or poems or something. And I'd done some poems at uni, but mm. um so, like I hadn't really figured out what sort of writer I was, I mm. suppose. I think the first things you write are often like copies, aren't they? But I think because uni was quite um I don't know what they would like, highbrow hmm. about the things that they counted as... Well, in some ways it was. Um, like, they had quite a fancy idea of what literature was, and right. I'm not sure that they would count me. Right. Um, or, or, or really, theatre, generally. Like, I did an English degree, but it was beyond, like, Elizabethan theatre. Yeah. They didn't really cover it.
1: Did you get, Were you involved in any kind of theatre at university at all? No, because I didn't really... Um,
0: it seemed like it was quite an extrovert thing right. and I'm a bit of an introvert yeah. and I think uni was a bit complicated anyway because I went to quite a posh uni and I'm from a not posh background mm. and people thought that the way to sort of accommodate you was to constantly remind you <laughs> of that um, <laughs> Not on purpose and not with any sort of nastiness, but right. it just meant that I was trying really hard to prove myself a lot of the time, yeah. I think, and train extra hard at the academic work. And also because my parents hadn't been to uni, so no one explained that, like, that what you get in your degree doesn't actually m- matter, really, mm. unless what you want to do is be an academic, mm. which I didn't. Um, no one had explained that you got a degree, so because it would lead to other things. Mm. I just thought I was gonna read lots of books for three years mm. and then figure out then what right. I wanted to do. And like, after I moved back, the jobs that I applied for, for were like, library assistant jobs and stuff that you didn't need a degree for, but I just, mm. and so I didn't get those jobs because they were like, why is he applying for this?
1: So you overqualified? Well, it always also, a weird
0: thing, isn't it? I was probably just not a very good applicant, oh, right. but like, um, there was no expectation, which is really freeing if you want to have a... Like, I really wanted to be a writer, but I just everyone just tells you that you can't mm. all the time. So like, I can remember having... At school, I had, we had, like, a careers advisor, and I told her that I wanted to be a writer. She didn't have a leaflet for that. So she was like, um, have you thought about dog grooming? <laughs> Was what, like, next oh. Yeah, she's like, um, she gave me a leaflet for dog grooming and park ranging. Because she was like, you say you like the outdoors? And I was like, yeah, but like, <laughs> and I, was like, I, really, I really like poems. <laughs> and, um, so I don't think there was a plan. I, I knew that I wanted to be a writer from when I was, like, really little. Mm. Um, but no one could tell you how to do it. Mm. And I, I suspect that that's because uh, people just assume it's like a really... Like impractical job, and it is, yeah. you know, like every year. And when when it's like six days to the deadline, and I'm starting adding on my receipts and filling my tax return. Yeah. I just think oh, I'm probably not quite out for this. But, <laughs> but if it's only a few days yeah. in the year, then it's, it's sort of alright. And and
1: then you saw an advert for the for the scheme at the West Yorkshire Playhouse. So yeah. Did that just come over the horizon? And, did, and my mum pointed it out to me. Yeah. I think she was a bit sick of me, like
0: just not having any sort of plan. Yeah. And I wouldn't wouldn't have applied for it if she hadn't said to do it. But also what was really brilliant about it was that you didn't have to have written anything before. You just wrote them a letter Mm -hmm. and sort of explained, told them a bit about yourself. Mm -hmm. And it turns out afterwards that what they were looking for is like your voice to see whether there was something in the letter that sort of leapt out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But they didn't say that in the... No. They were just like, so some people basically sent their CVs and they were like, "I'm mm, not interested." Right, sorry. Right. Whereas I just wrote about um, living in a linen cupboard at my mom and dad's house <laughs> and wandering around Kilkenny thinking about poems, um, and they were they, they were giving me a thumbs up. Right. So, and and from that they took a few. We wrote like short pieces for that, and they got performed. Um, I didn't realise we were meant to go, so I went to Glastonbury, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> which is a bit embarrassing yeah. now. And then from that, they took a few of us on to write longer plays,
1: right. and that's what I wrote me as a Penguin for that's that. That's where that came from. Yeah. Did it? Was it an easy sort of first thing, or did you struggle?
0: Um, they were really wise in that right. they we we knew it was going to have a read, in we didn't know it was going to get a like a. Production, so um they said that you will have four actors right. and no set.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so that was quite helpful in a way because I think sometimes when you're faced with a, a blank space, mm. you, you don't know what to do. But when you're like, oh, well, I've got to have four characters, mm. like Music Penguin, you can do with a sofa, mm. that's it. Um, that was really useful. Or really useful for me. I guess some people would be really frustrated by mm-hmm. having four actors. So yeah. the most you can have on stage is... You can write more characters, but yeah. the most you can have on stage is four people. Um, but it, I think it was really helpful. And also, it was just like being in that little group of people. It was the first time I'd been with writers. And the first time i talked about books and 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 poems and stuff a lot, but in a really different, like, in an academic way, mm. and that's actually really frustrating if yeah. what you want to talk about is, like, the nuts and bolts of it. And mm. and things at uni that were really frowned on was were, like, if if you had, like, an em- emotional response to something, whereas that's sort of what you're trying to do yeah. with... I'm well, um, well, they just wanted you to talk about, like, a bit of writing in which they wanted you to call the text meant politically or... In terms of like its historical value, or what it meant for gender, or stuff like that. Mm. Whereas, actually, I think the measure of something is like if it's got a heart, or if the characters feel alive, mm. or if it says something interesting about the world or what it is to be a human. There's yeah, this Sadie Smith article that I've read once called "Fail Better." And she says in it, she has a little joke in it about how no one ever sits down and like oh, thank goodness I'm about to really explore the reification of the feminine. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, that's not what they're doing. They're yeah. just writing like decent, interesting female characters. Or yeah.
1: So when you started to kind of put together the scenes and construct it and start to sort of mould it and shape it, <clears throat> when you were reading over it and seeing it in rehearsal, did it translate from what was in your mind? Was it was it kind of what you imagined?
0: Um, it, it was, but... It's worth saying that because I had never done it before, I didn't understand what the process of theatre was. Oh. Um, so I didn't know what a director was. Right. So unlike the first day, the director was like, I'm the director. Yeah. I didn't have a, a clue what that meant. Right. Um, I picked it up by just sitting quietly and letting yeah, them yeah. crack on with it. But, um, and also the other thing that I didn't realise, I suppose, was that um, actors if you listen to the, like, everyone brings something to the process, Mm -hmm. and I I don't think I realised that. I thought once you'd written it, it was, that was it, it was still, and then everyone's job was to try and make it the thing that it is in your head. But actually, it's just so much better if everyone brings a bit of themselves to it, and it ends up being a
1: genuine collaboration. So that took a bit of getting used to. And Was that a good experience, or do you think, oh, we're drifting away from what I imagined here? Um, it was how I learned about theatre really because what I'd written, like when you
0: read the scripts of Me as a Penguin it's like very short scenes mm. very punchline obviously written by someone who's watched a lot of gentle northern sitcoms mm-hmm. and doesn't really understand what play is because mm. like, I didn't, because I hadn't seen many and mm. so it's just it's quite like televisual but then what happened in the process of making it was that it became a bit there was room for it to be a bit more theatrical uh-huh. in that like the first production of it the lighting design added something to it and stuff like that and uh-huh. it just made it a little bit more poetic uh-huh. I still didn't feel like a playwright yeah right. so I, I just thought I'd, I'd written this play to like have a go at being a writer uh-huh. but I didn't think I would end up being a playwright right okay but, um, that's interesting
1: so it was just a, well, a jumping off point to whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I thought I'd be a novelist. Right. But, because that's just what I'd always read. Mm. But then from me as a penguin, I got on to... So Roxana Silbert, who ran Payne's Plough at the time, came and did a workshop on me as a penguin. Mm. For, um, I don't really know why. Mm. And she gave me a leaflet for Future Perfect at Payne's Plough, which was like a, a, a longer thing, like a year-long mm. attachment with other writers and I did that and they we met loads of playwrights and directors and we made lots of work and I met a director there called Tessa Walker who I still work with now like she's just one of my gang and she taught me about by accident taught me about she just directed a few of our plays I'm watching her be a director and be a really brilliant new writing director and listening to her notes and seeing her the way that she helped you shape her mm. play and the way that she talked to actors and stuff. That made me into a playwright,
1: mm. I think. I think that's that's when I first worked with you on Jumpers of Goalposts. It's the first time I'd seen the partnership between a writer and a director. I, I didn't realise how you've got somebody sort of coaxing you in certain directions. Oh, um, James, who directed yeah. Jumpers of Goalposts. Is so, yeah, the, James Greve was the director and, and I saw the kind of process and you coming back with the rewrites. and It, it, it really was a real eye-opener seeing that that partnership uh, but also some of the rewrites
0: came from actors in the room to, to sort of like your thoughts and instincts about stuff I think that what you like that process I learned so much from and you came in at, at like rehearsal process but we'd been through like five drafts by then mm-hmm. and I'd flung quite a lot at it like it's gone in quite a lot of different directions. And then just before we started rehearsals, James sat down with all the drafts that I'd done and sort of helped me piece together, a, we just talked through it, but pieced together a rehearsal draft with the best bits of all the different drafts. And that was kind of amazing. Because I think what directors, really good new writing directors can do is hold all the things that you wanted it to be mm. and f- pick out all the best of each thing. Mm each version of it in the head which a writer can't do I don't think Right Um, so you need that objective eye Yeah just because I don't know probably the draft that you auditioned from Mm -hmm. versus the draft like the final thing I feel like it had got really heavy and bogged down and quite miserable (laughs) Um, and then James was like just remembered that when he commissioned it we'd had a chat about it being a rom-com like he just remembered that Mm. just as it I'm sure you would remembered it all along, but you just sort of gently reminded me of that. And then that brought it, got rid of a lot of the really, well, he didn't get rid of those feelings. And mm-hmm. that, there's real sadness in that yeah. play and real pain, but it just it reminded me where I needed to get to. Mm. Um, but I think what is also really worth remembering about James and Tessa, and I think Jane, fellow Phil, who I work with a lot as well, and I think Paul Smith at Middle Child, is that they're all really great. Um, that literary development skill mm. is like a really special and unique skill. Yeah. And, and if you don't have it, you don't always recognise how important it is because mm. you just see a finished play. Mm. Whereas other people that I've written plays for who don't have that skill necessarily are really surprised when you hand in an early draft of something and it's not as good as the thing that they saw in its finished state, mm. they don't realise that it's a thing that you can work on and sort of develop. And that's part of the fun of doing a new play, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, and actors too. Like, it takes a certain kind of actor to trust that it'll end up being good, even though it's not quite there
1: at the start of a process. Yeah, I guess, yeah, because I guess when, from an actor's point of view, when you start out, you kind of work on classics. Like, yeah. you do maybe a bit of Willie Russell or you do some John Godby, you do Teachers... And it's kind of, it's been through that process often years before. So you're working with like a polished piece of drama and you, you don't really know that, that that had to go through a process when it was first done in its original form. And so when you, when you see it, a kind of, and it's quite a risky kind of, you think, God, this could go either way. What, what if it just goes down the, the wrong fork in the road? And, and it, you end up losing it. Yeah. You end up losing the kind of, the idea and what it was originally meant to be. Um, and that's where a good director kind of is at the wheel just saying, left a bit, right a bit. Yeah, and um, can sort of hold then a yeah. bit cost Because they're also going
0: through a rehearsal process of their own production, hmm. which means that week three is probably not looking that brilliant. Yeah. But, like, your bit's not looking that brilliant, but also you've got to stay upbeat for the writer and, and the yet, cast. Particularly the actors, who are, yeah. yeah. Who are like paranoid and, and not really wanting new lines to learn and, well, and, yeah. sort of, um, and the writer's feeling the time pressure to get it all right. Mm. And I think also what's, what I learned about Gradually is like the value of previews, because mm. I didn't, I used to think that like first night was when you ought to have it right by, right. but actually, <laughs> um, I mean the panto taught me this, is that just you've got to use your previews to try different things I'll just explain
1: a bit about previews so before uh, like they call it first night or press night that's where the press come and that's where the the play is in it's hopefully optimal state and it doesn't really change after that but sometimes you get like weeks of previews or at least a week or maybe three three previews and that's after the dress rehearsal so there'll be audiences there um, and things can change quite dramatically can't they during previews you get like bits will be cut There'll be rewrites, and from the first preview to the press night, things often change, and it's just really, it's like a fine-tuning period, um, or more than that, if, if things aren't right. Yeah. Um, and that's why press are not invited until press night, where you say, this is the best we can do. And tickets are got. usually a bit cheaper yeah, for previews. They, yeah. Well. Um, we've sort of jumped forward a little bit, but is it, is it fair to say your breakthrough play was uh, The Kitchen Sink? I think so. Well, Yeah. Probably, I don't um, feel like I've so broken from, through. But yeah, it, well, it was the one that um, lots of people came to see. Yeah, I guess. So, from me as a penguin to the kitchen sink, when did you first sort of feel that I'm a playwright and this is? Uh, well, the first proper process that I'd
0: been through was with Tessa mm-hmm. on a play called About a Ghost, um, which she did in Glasgow yeah. um, for they used to do this lunch. I think they still do lunchtime to called Play Pie Pint, where everyone had a pint and a pie and watched a short play, so like 45 minutes, in your lunch break. And I worked with Tesla on that, and that was the thing that made me get what a playwright's role was and what a director's role was, Mm because we just had a really... And the actor, Owen Whitelaw, we just had a really straightforward and honest rehearsal room, Mm -hmm. and and the play really grew. And we spent two weeks on it, whereas before that, I don't think I'd ever had like a long rehearsal period. Mm. And then, but the, the whole year that we spent at Payne's Plough just changed the way that I thought about writing. And, right. and I sort of got to know a bit about theatre. I guess that's how I, like when you read The Kitchen Sink, it's just a really different sort of a play to Me As A Penguin, mm. in that Me As A Penguin obviously someone who's watched a lot of sitcoms. And The Kitchen Sink is like, like, even its title, it sort of engaged with a certain kind of theatre mm. that, like, I'd found out about, um, well, I'd found out about Mike Bredwell, who set up a whole truck, and I'd found out about Sheila Delaney, who wrote um, A Taste of Honey, which I just loved when I read it. Yeah. Um, and I'd found out about Joan Littlewood mm. and um, the kind of theatre that she wanted to make, which was both, like, incredibly accessible and popular, but wow. also, like, firing on all cylinders in terms of being like really brilliant art mm. and I think that that's just what you're staying for always. Um, so I found out about kitchen sink drama I guess in that time and then I decided when I got a commission from the bush that that's what I wanted to write. Mm. I wanted to have a go writing one of those. Mm. Um, so I was definitely engaging with what a play was mm. by then. Um, but I also wanted to write about... it. It was the first sort of um, sense of cr- there being a credit crunch and stuff, and because I, mm. I know a lot about Within Sea, because I grew up near there. And the idea that it was sh- this community that was shrinking because it is literally getting smaller; like it's mm. got really bad coastal
1: erosion. Yeah, and, um, and there's, there's no railway line to it. You have to get a bus. Yeah, so it's really. But, but really there used remote. to be a railway. line. Yeah. so like in the
0: yeah. 60s, in its heyday, it was like a big seaside town. I guess in. The 1900s. It was a big seaside yeah. town, but um, it's like really shrinking, and it felt like that would be quite a useful metaphor yeah. for for what was happening politically. Um, that all sounds really. No, but I think I, I also just wanted to write a play, an honest play about a family, yeah. and to have to write about, it's about a milkman who realises he can't be a milkman anymore Mm. and I guess that seemed like a small way of talking about the way that a lot of small independent businesses were shrinking Mm. and I really wanted, I'd also just moved to London and there's a character in it called Billy who goes to art college and he's really nervous about going and then he gets in sort of by accident because they think that they like misinterpret his he, he like makes these paintings of Dolly Pat and mm. re- who he really loves mm. and they're painted with like real love and authenticity and then the the people who interview him for art school sort of misinterpret it as as like joking and kitsch <laughs> and um and that was a lot what I felt about being a writer in London because mm. it felt like it was quite um clever, clever sort of, no one was putting their hat, I, I mean, people were putting their hat into it, but it just felt like, critically, that was a bit laughed at, like sneered at, that was seen as a bit dated and stuff. Right. And so I wrote a really heartfelt play where one of the characters went through that process. And it's really like, gently camp comedy, and, which is so untrendy when you're like, young, in, in that scene, mm. in, in that playwriting world. It was like him um, to be so earnest and heartfelt was very
1: out of was very uncool, I suppose. Yeah, you know, we sort of live in the age of irony where people don't wear the heart, they wear the heart under a fashionable sleeve. Yeah. And, um, like, just just a, like a self-protection <laughs> thing, really. Yeah. But I, I think that if you're the
0: sort of person who doesn't really do that, just, I just think writers should look like their plays, mm. like or plays should look like the people who wrote them. So there's no way that I could write a play that was like too cool for school. Mm. Or, so
1: I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you feel pressure? Did you, Or did you have any external pressure when you're going through the kind of process to sort of maybe throw in a few modish um, elements? It, it was kind of like really hot around the same sort of time. What was going on at the Royal Court? Um, I guess it was like
0: polystenum mm-hmm. <laughs> Quite different. Yeah. Um, and Bala, it um, was very urban. Mm-hmm. So it seems strange to be writing about like. So I sat it in Wimbenzi, and I can remember sitting in the audience next to this couple mm. of sort of quite. Um, I'm sure they were really nice, but they were just from a different world to me, and that they were like quite. Um, they. What's the word like, bane or yeah. something? Yeah, um, metropolitan. And, yeah, certainty. very metropolitan. And like, obviously, went to the theatre a lot, much more than I did. And they they were asking one of them asked the other one like, "Oh, is this Winceya made up place?" And, and then the other one said with absolute confidence, "Yes, the writers made it up." <laughs> I just thought, oh, I, I don't know whether I don't know whether that, that's it's okay that I've made it because I guess to them it seemed like it was major Mm. but I tried to write a really
1: this truly can't exist (laughs)
0: yeah (laughs) Yeah. I tried to write something authentic and truthful but I guess it didn't I guess it's a bit like you try and write your version of the world and some people think it Mm. isn't it isn't possible
1: that's when I was growing up and I I didn't see Hull on stage I just presumed that well there's a reason for that and it's because nobody thinks it's a fit subject to kind of write about which is Nowadays, I'm sort of ashamed that I thought that, but I just assumed, you know, there's certain things you can and can't write about. One of them is places like Hull or Withering for God's sake. But I think also there's like a real condescension in
0: people, um, and I've, I've seen it in different productions of the plays, so mm. like, so, sometimes with a later production, you, you're not involved, but I've or, or like an amateur production and stuff, mm. and... One of the things that I've noticed is that they they often, like, really heighten the comedy. Right. um, Because they think that... I don't know why, but it seems to me that there's... That one of the things that I do if I'm in the room is just... Or I suppose I cast people who understand the, like, unspoken trouble mm. underneath the comedy because I think that that's what you do when you're having a hard time in your life is that you make jokes about it mm. and I think that's what my characters are always doing it's like they're funny people but it's not necessarily a funny situation mm. but I think sometimes people don't like a, people just find things a bit too funny and it feels like they're not really engaging with like the truth of the situation I, I think that used to happen a bit in jumpers, you, mm. you know, like yeah. people would have had a really. People would just say, "Oh, it's so funny! It's so light! Mm. It's a rom com." You know, oh well. But I mean, everyone's really revealed a lot about themselves and their soul and the trouble that are tough things that they're dealing with. Yeah, they're and not having
1: the time of their lives. Yeah.
0: by any means, yeah. But it, I think, people are so used to. I think specifically in London, actually, or in big cities, people are so used to going to the theatre and having like, this very extreme sort of lacerating time. Mm. Um, but I think that's a bit to do with place as well, in that like, people are writing, um, people aren't writing about Hull. Like in Hull, I feel like there's something in the bones of Hull that is a bit quirky mm. and eccentric and quick to laugh over tough situations Mm. and really self-deprecating and really something that makes like it feels to me like it makes less of its problems Mm. like and when you think about what the city is made of or or built on you can really understand Mm. it and it's full of like incredibly strong like whole past is full of incredible strength that comes from sort of quite unacknowledged people I think yeah is, I, I love writing about that, but, mm. but it's not something that always translates when people aren't
1: used to that world or mm.
0: like familiar with it.
1: Yeah, I think in terms of the essence of Hull or Wither Suit, you know, two different places. There's quite a few miles in between, but it is the same sort of part of the world. And it does resonate that those things that you just talked about, yeah, I've been on stage in plays by different writers certain things that get laughs, you just think that's a bit, I mean, thanks for the laugh, but <laughs> I didn't, when I first read that, that didn't seem like a joke to me. We wouldn't find that funny and you know? all, that's just who we are, that's not like I was making a joke. Yeah. Um, so, what is unique about Hull, when it appears on stage, what, what is essential about it? I think there's something really
0: self-deprecating about it, as a city, mm. and as individuals, and, and I think as a, Writer, i'm really drawn to people who like characters who are a bit on the edges of things anyway so mm. if you think about the sort of scenario of jumpers for golf is that like the last people that you would ever expect to join a football team are all in a football team and then luke manages to be even more of a misfit in that he, yeah. he's like he like can't believe he gets to join this team of absolute misfits yeah I feel like my experience of being in Hull and like growing up here and, and, and living here now is that people people are fine with that, you, you know. Like you're accepted for who you are yeah. in a way that other cities are, haven't found that to be the case. There's an, like I don't know the best. I guess you just find your gang, and I feel like mm. in Hull I've sort of found my gang, and when people just let you, they just let you go on with it. Yeah, they're just not sort of. Um, not over-worried about sort of status or... Mm. But also I think It's not a judge,
1: I think it's... Yeah, it's a lack of judgment.
0: Like, not a lack in that there's something missing. It's a decision not to judge people, Mm. to just, if you get on with people, you get on with them. Mm. And if you're funny, you're just funny. Like, I was getting my hair cut the other day and I associate that with, like, horrible, awkward silence. And actually, just have a bit of a chat and a bit of a laugh Mm. With the lad cutting my hair, who is really different to me and mm. wouldn't like, I feel like I'm not his gang, but you find common ground, and somehow that I've not experienced that in other places. Um, so that feels really special. Similarly, stuff like um, if you want to do something, people go out of their way to help you to do stuff. Mm. So, like, when I've done little tours of things, I've played round Hull mm. and used writing, people have been been so helpful and gone so out of their way and been delighted mm. that we've asked if we can take our play there or like the, the war and the young people's project in town are just amazing at like having you in to do workshops and they they're so welcoming and a company like middle Child is so open and so kind of like so we did devoted and disgruntled last year which is like a theatery conferency thing
1: and um I don't know what is it like. A um, it's like a kind of like a sort of conference where people come. Somebody wrote a book about how to have a, like a forum.
0: Yeah, and forum.
1: You, you take the temperature of what's happening in the arts or theatre in a place, and then anybody can basically propose like a little group meeting and talk about how things can improve or what we need to do better or what we do well or where things are going wrong or where just things aren't happening at all. Yeah, and it's a really open sort of forum where. Anybody feels they can talk about anything. Um, and yet it's really cleverly structured, how that happens. Improbable theatre, they yeah. sort of run yeah. it, don't they? Yeah. And I, was, I did
0: a thing about writers in Hull and about how there isn't a, a way, if you're a total new beginner writer, for you to learn how to write plays. Hmm. I was talking to Paul Smith from Middletown about it and he was just like, well, what can we do? Hmm. And now we're setting up a writers' group and... It was just that simple. I don't think it's that simple in all these cities. And because we were setting that up, um, Jamie from Middlechild also had the idea to start a plays library at Middlechild. And suddenly, there's like um, they've got like more than 350 play texts, and now that anyone in Hull can go and read. And the Royal Court have come on board with the writers group, and they're going to read the scripts and send some a couple of other writers as well as me to do the workshops with people that way, mm. and, and suddenly it all grows and stuff sort of grows but it's just because Paul all that time ago was just like well what can we do mm. instead of I feel like lots of places people think it's someone else's job but like um here if you want to do it it feels like people are quite up for helping you out mm. and helping make something
1: happen so basically 10 years ago if that had been there for you that had been you know you had to go to Leeds yeah but now if there's a Tom Wells who's just left university washing up somewhere, Yeah. somewhere, if they've got just the the vaguest idea of something that they want to say, or a story they want to tell, there's a place where they can go and get people to help them do that.
0: And that feels like progress, Yeah. like it feels like it's a tiny little change in the sort of fabric of things, Mm. but it just means, it's just something that's there that wasn't there.
1: Hope you enjoyed that. Big thanks to Tom who has now got the playwriting course at Middle Child up and running and he's helping a new generation of writers tell their stories. His one-man comedy musical Drip is on at Hull Truck on the 8th and 9th of November and it opens at the Bush Theatre in London in early December and there's more exciting work from Tom in the pipeline. Drip. Pipeline. Get it? (laughs) Sorry. Thanks for listening and...